A great American president, Abraham Lincoln, said that his country was the last best hope of Earth, a nation with a special mission to save mankind. I'm Professor Adam Smith, director of the Rothermere American Institute at Oxford, and on this podcast, I'll be exploring how this powerful idea shapes America. They are the two men leading the polls in their respective parties, former President Donald Trump and President Joe Biden. Crooked Joe puts China first, he puts Asia first, Ukraine first, illegal aliens first, environmental lunatics first. He puts everyone first. He, does, he doesn't put me first. In 2024, both parties look set to nominate unpopular candidates. According to polls, more than half the electorate don't want another Biden-Trump race. A majority of Americans think Trump morally unfit. And another majority, albeit made up of different people, think Biden mentally incapable because, among other things, of his age. But the primary system for nominating presidential candidates was supposed to prevent this problem. It was supposed to ensure that parties picked the most electable person available. The idea of letting voters determine who a party should run in the election was intended to break the power of the old party machines to road test candidates by making them connect with voters in advance of the main test in November. At an Iowa precinct caucus, the name of the game is organization. The people who caucus are the party activists. The candidate who wins is the one who gets out the most troops. The primary system this circus that's traditionally wended its way from Iowa to New Hampshire and beyond every four years, is one of the most distinctive features of American political life. These primaries are public elections, which in some states allow any voter to help choose the candidate of a party they may not themselves support. It exemplifies the oddity of American political parties, private organisations in some respects, but without the formal membership of parties in other countries, and with their candidate nomination process regulated by state law. So how, why and when did US political parties come to choose their presidential candidates in this way? It is, after all, a process with immense consequences for the United States and therefore for the rest of the world. And how have these primaries shaped the outcome of presidential elections and the trajectory of politics? I talked about these questions to the leading historian of modern U.S. politics, Julian Zalitzer of Princeton University, a CNN contributor and the author or editor of 15 books on recent American political history. We're recording this uh, the day after President Biden had to go on TV and insist that his memory was just fine, uh, which has brought to the surface once again this obvious problem that Biden is a potentially very weak candidate, if only because of his age and other things. Julian, we're in a situation, in other words, where both political parties in 2024 appear to have nominated candidates with significant weaknesses. Big picture question to start with, how has that come about? Well, I don't think there's any specific cause that uh, required this to be the outcome. I mean, we had President Obama uh, in office who won his nomination, much younger, uh, more vibrant. I think a part of this is not about age. It was obviously the former president 
Donald Trump uh, just, I think, meshed with where the Republican Party had moved very well. And even though in 2016, he faced candidates who were younger, uh, maybe of a different generation, what he said, the way he did it, complemented the direction the GOP had taken. And so I don't think it's just about age. It was about style and, and substance. And I think Biden's age mattered in 2020 when he ran. I think his age and experience and the perception of stability then uh, was very attractive in a very unstable, turbulent period and in contrast to then President Trump. And so I think that's how we ended up this way. It isn't very common for incumbent presidents to have a serious challenge. It's happened occasionally, uh, but it's rare. So Biden gets the nomination again. And Trump's more interesting in some ways. Um, but I still think it's the same as in 2016. Um, put his age aside. I think he reflects the modern Republican Party quite well. It's an odd situation in another way, isn't it, Julian? In, the, in effect, we have two incumbents running. In each, each party is poised to nominate an incumbent, and incumbents have huge advantages. Trump is running effectively as the incumbent leader of his party. He, after all, doesn't accept that he lost the last presidential election. Is that the key dynamic to understand on the Republican side this year? I mean, to some extent, what it's remarkable he's made himself into that, meaning he isn't an incumbent. He's a one-term president who lost. And usually when that happens, think of President Jimmy Carter, who was a Democrat in 1980 who lost to Reagan, and the party wanted nothing to do with him for a long time. George H.W. Bush was a one-term president who ends in 1993, when he leaves office, and, and he's not a, a pariah like Carter is for Democrats, but he's certainly not someone who the party wants front and center anymore. They, in fact, moved to his son, who's young and much more conservative. So uh, Trump has figured out a way to erase all that. And yes, in addition, make this argument that he never actually lost, which seems to be taking hold in a lot of the Republican electorate voting in these primaries. So he has turned himself into an incumbent, and that brings name recognition, and that brings uh, a certain gravitas within the party that makes him look more presidential and formidable than his opponents. Yeah, there were, there were two main narratives about how to read Trump's victory in the Iowa caucuses and in the New Hampshire primary. One was he is the strongest candidate that we've seen probably in either party running in an open primary in the modern presidential era, judging by the scale of his victories. The other is for an incumbent running, how remarkable that there's such a significant chunk of opposition to him, even in Iowa. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm more on, on the... First part, meaning, uh, yes, it is true that he, both in Iowa and New Hampshire, to some extent, has faced challenges you would not expect if he was an incumbent. So not as many Republicans voted. There was opposition, including in New Hampshire, where his opponent did quite well, which isn't what we would expect from an incumbent. That said, you can also think, boy, it's kind of amazing that he's doing this well and that he is winning and winning despite everything. So despite the fact he isn't an incumbent. He's a one-term president, despite the fact he dragged down his party in three election cycles, despite the fact he tried to overturn the last election. Here he is. 
as the dominant Republican. I think that is clear uh, in, in the mix. And so for me, that's how I see it. Uh, that's more striking uh, than any drop in numbers uh, that he might face. And similarly, look, early polling, uh, which is not indicative of everything, but it's certainly important, shows he's incredibly competitive, if not doing better than President Trump, including in swing states. So all of that, despite what is a pretty kind of remarkable four years he put the country through, um, that says a lot to me about his standing as being strong within the Republican Party rather than weak. I want to just take a step back here, talking with you as a political historian, Julian, as well as a commentator on contemporary American politics. And I kind of want to understand, let's sort of take a sort of deep dive into how we, why it is that American political parties select their presidential candidates in the way they do and what the consequences of that form of choice are. I think the origins, as I understand it, of the modern primary system go back to the aftermath of the 1968 uh, election and the debacle of the Democratic Convention in Chicago and following Richard Nixon's victory, the Democratic Party's loss in that year in 1968, there was a concerted effort to change the system for the selection of a Democratic presidential candidate to expand, greatly expand and formalize the use of primaries. Um, so 1972, am I right, was the first year in which the on the Democratic side, the uh, modern primary system, as we as we recognise it, came it in came into into being. We, can you just talk us through what problems the primary system, the introduction of that primary system, was trying to solve? Primaries go back uh, really uh, to the early twentieth century. Um, we we had there's there's kind of two stages I think to the history. Uh, the first stage is uh, from the early nineteen hundreds to about nineteen sixty eight where a bunch of states put into play primaries. Wisconsin puts one in uh, 1905. Oregon puts one into place in 1910. And a bunch of other states will do it. And, and so some states have primaries before 1968-72, but they're not the main way in which um, the candidates are selected by the party. The party machine really has the power uh, to pick who is going to run for the presidency. Many candidates don't even run in these uh, primaries that do exist. So they become sort of like straw polls, indicative tests. So there's a famous one in, in 1960 where uh, Hubert Humphrey uh, uh, runs in Wisconsin and, and John F. Kennedy also runs there. And it's just a, it's not going to determine who it is, but it's almost like a little test, a feeler for where the candidates are. And actually, Kennedy does very well, and that indicates to the party um, that he's more formidable than they thought. But what happens is, uh, 1968, the Democrats have a very controversial and, and divisive um, convention in, in Chicago. Uh, the war in Vietnam causes all kinds of protests and division. And so the party reforms how they pick their candidates, and they make two big changes. One is that primaries and caucuses will really be the way that the party determines who is going to run rather than the party machine. So it's a democratization of the decision-making. And the second is that the delegates will reflect 
the nature of the party. So you'll have more women, more black Americans, more uh, younger uh, delegates, not old white male party people. And so those two changes uh, really start to take effect in 1972. They fully take effect in 1976. And they really set us on the path where today conventions are, they're the beauty pageants, essentially. They're a, a television advertisement. And the party machine, as we used to know it, doesn't control who's going to become the nominee anymore. So at least on the Democratic side, this was designed to avoid the um, conflict and the actual literal violence on the convention floor and the general mess of, of 1968. And I suppose the idea was this was about taking the party back from the bosses. I mean, this was about putting the people, whoever the people are, in charge. I mean, it's still the case, and it was the case from the beginning of the modern era, that different states had different rules uh, about how primaries are implemented, and it's, and it's state legislation that implements them. So we think about this, this odd paradox with American political parties where they're sort of quasi-private public institutions, kind of regulated by, by um, public law in the sense that a state legislatures regulate um, primaries, even while you would think... Uh, on the sort of parliamentary analogy that they're private organizations. And so in some states, in some states, uh, only Democrats can vote in Democratic primaries and Republicans in Republican primaries. But in other states, in open primaries, anybody can vote in either. Um, and that introduces a further dimension to it, doesn't it, really? Which is that it's, 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 there's almost a sense in which what the parties were doing in moving over to this primary system was giving a dry run to the to the broader electorate. Was that the idea, that you take it not only out of the party bosses, you don't put it into the hands of the party activists, you put it into the hands of the broad electorate who are not necessarily engaged with politics at all other than once every four years? Was that the idea? I think both things that you said are true. The first part, I think, is notable. And, and from an international perspective, it might be a little confusing sometimes. I mean, every state has their own rules. Some states use uh, caucuses, which in Iowa, for example, uh, are very kind of difficult to follow processes. Those caucuses are different than caucuses in other states, and, and then other states use primaries. So it's a real kind of mess in terms of how it works. And then the second part, yes. I mean, the point is experts uh, or people deeply invested in politics, at least theoretically, shouldn't determine these decisions. You open it up like any election and anyone who wants to come can come. And that was the hope, I think, in 1972 uh, or a little earlier as the reforms are conceived. Um, and that that democratic decision ultimately for all its flaws would be better and more reflective of where the public had moved. This is important than party machine, which tends to be invested in the status quo. Uh, and so it was a big bet. Uh, first, the Democrats took it, and then Republicans essentially follow. Mm. I mean, there's a certain irony there, isn't there, Julian, in the, the, the 1972 election, so the first on the Democratic side to use primaries fully, ends up with the nomination of McGovern, who himself was the joint chair of the Democratic committee that introduced these reforms, but who proved to be, at least was perceived to be, so far to the left that he lost in a historic landslide against Richard Nixon. Um, it didn't seem to work out first time round. Was that just bad luck? 
Yeah, I don't think that was uh, inevitably a product of this. And the party hasn't totally lost its sway in 72. They're really kind of introducing this. I think part of it was McGovern did reflect where a lot of Democrats were. I mean, he was a liberal internationalist who had turned against the war in Vietnam and saw the logic of the anti-war movement. There were many Democrats like that. But Nixon, Richard Nixon, who's the incumbent and had a big advantage in 72, has figured out a campaign that's very broad, actually, and uh, very inclusive, ironically enough, for someone who's going to resign two years later, coalitional, and also pretty vicious campaign, where he figures out a way to kind of characterize McGovern as being a far left, today we would call, you know, a squad member, even though that's not who he was. So I don't think McGovern and McGovern's loss signaled that somehow this new system was always going to produce losers. And in fact, four years later, it produces the president of the United States. Right. So we need to be careful about causation and correlation here. And and Nixon, as you said, ran and he really, this is one of the ironies of the ironies in 1972. He certainly didn't need to break into the Watergate Hotel. He was going to win the 1972 election handily anyway. And by building that big coalition, as you as you said, and with um, a very memorable uh, campaign jingle that gets into your head if you ever uh, listen to it. Um, but then in 1976, as you say, Jimmy Carter came through the primary process. Now, is that, I mean, if you were to pick an example of uh, a primary race which works exactly as the innovators, the reformers, the introducers of the primary system intended, would Jimmy Carter's success in the party in 76 and then obviously subsequent success in the general election. Would that be a good example to pick? Yes, uh, with one caveat. And the caveat was what I think McGovern and the reformers didn't totally anticipate was how important the media would become. It wasn't simply um, that candidates ran, voters picked. The new bosses in some ways were the reporters on the ground who were translating not only what a candidate had to say, but what the meaning of each victory or loss in a caucus or primary meant. Um, But I do think Carter in 76 not only understands the new processes, um, but he is the kind of candidate that in some ways reformers hoped would win. He wasn't very well known. He was Mm -hmm. not part of the Washington establishment. And he ran a campaign which in 76 really did fit uh, with the mood of the nation, uh, a frustrated, distrustful, disillusioned country. Um, And he figured out how to do it. And the way he did it, which is really kind of remarkable from today's perspective, is old-fashioned campaigning in the States. Like in Iowa, which he won and took seriously, where most people never took the state seriously, he went many, many times and created a whole legion of volunteers who went door to door and they would send postcards to everyone they had met uh, within you know, a few days, if not a few weeks. And he continued to do this. So it was retail politics aimed at the voters and the media. Uh, and the system produces a candidate who was not the expected candidate. In 68, it would have been implausible um, to have someone like Carter defeat the people he was running against in the prime were very formidable, well-known senators and, and such. Jimmy Carter entered the Democratic presidential race a political unknown. Outside of Georgia, hardly anyone even recognized his name. But that would change. Jimmy who? Jimmy Carter. Jimmy who? 
There were no reporters, no cameras, no secret service nearby when Jimmy first walked up and introduced himself to countless voters. This style was unheard of for a presidential hopeful, but for Jimmy Carter, there was no other way. I want to be tested in the most severe possible way. I can't think of any more severe way than campaigning 250 days this year outside of Georgia or entering 31 different primaries. I want the people of this country to know my character my strengths and my weaknesses, my stand on the issues. If I can measure up to what the American people want our government to be, I'll be elected. The Carter campaign also, as you said, it exemplifies the the, the new uh, power that uh, candidates could get out of grassroots campaigning, and that was a kind of exciting thing and very much in the spirit of the new reforms. It also illustrated the power of the media narrative and the sense of that notion of momentum that notion that the that this isn't just a series of discrete uh elections caucuses or, or primaries in different states which would then be agglomerated and the delegates come together but there's a kind of dynamic process that builds a narrative from iowa through to new hampshire and 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 onwards and I guess that's also something that would have been hard to anticipate, isn't it, at, at the beginning of the, the introduction of the price? Yeah, I mean, so so the story of 76 is most people never really thought the Iowa caucus mattered. That was the first in the schedule. And most candidates didn't go there. Uh, they just sent people, if if at all. And Carter and his team were desperate to find a way to get attention and to create the idea that he was a serious candidate. When he announced... You know, the famous joke was Jimmy who, uh, meaning no one even knew who this guy was. And so he uses Iowa. He takes it seriously. He goes, the, does the door to door. He does a lot of media events there. And he, he comes in, uh, he performs very well. And the key is because he does well in Iowa, uh, the media then starts to focus on him before New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when we get this phenomenon that we talk about today, how one contest can create momentum for the second because of how the media interprets it. Yesterday, about 50,000 Democrats in Iowa met in caucuses in homes, churches, and firehouses to choose delegates for their state party convention. In a caucus like this one last night in a school in Des Moines, voters divided into small groups supporting various candidates. The regulars jockeyed and bargained among themselves in the struggle for precinct delegates. Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter did extremely well with 27% of the delegate preferences, more than twice as many as Indiana Senator Birch Bayh and three times as many as Fred Harris, the former Oklahoma senator. Well, I feel very pleased and proud of the showing we had in Iowa. I thought we'd come in first or second. I was hoping to come in first, but to uh, come in two to one ahead of the next candidate was a very gratifying thing. In fact, the morning after Iowa, Carter wasn't in Iowa. He was in New York City. And he came here so that he could interview with the press on national TV shows. Um, and he, he understood how important that was going to be. Right, and that's exactly right. what happens. And that's remained a staple of, of how these things work um, and how candidates try to anticipate where they can build some kind of momentum based on their performance in one relative to what comes next. Right. And when you think of 1976 and Jimmy Carter, you think of that very effective way in which he would introduce himself by saying, my name's Jimmy Carter and I'm running for president, which he then turned into a campaign song. And and I'll just fast forward. I mean, Obama would do this, too, in 2008 when 
many people did not think he was going to be a viable candidate for every reason from his race and, and America's reluctance to kind of move beyond that to the fact he was facing Hillary Clinton, who was the most well-known and established Democrat. And his performance in Iowa is really important. He does not win in New Hampshire, but it shows he can win. Uh, it shows he's serious. And the media just starts to talk about him differently. And endorsements will follow. So he's also an example, I think, of where you see yeah. this perception politics become so vital um, to why the, the, why the victories are important in these. What do you think about on the Republican side? Would Ronald Reagan have got the nomination in 1980 if it hadn't been for the primary system? No, uh, he wouldn't have. He already shakes things up in 1976, and he runs against President Ford. Um, and he does really well, and it's through primary voters in states like Ford, for your listeners, is a Republican. So here's a Republican taking on a Republican. And one of the things that happens is he... he Reagan runs a very hard right campaign on foreign policy. He says President Ford is too accommodationist with the Soviet Union. He's practicing detente, which meant uh, agreements with the Soviets rather than tension. And Car and Reagan starts to do really well in states like Texas. Um, and what the Ford people are reporting in their internal memoranda is he's drawing all these voters who usually didn't vote. They didn't participate in politics, but they really liked Reagan. Uh, and they were attracted by his conservatism, and the primary system allowed them to be part of the process. In the end, Reagan barely loses. He almost beats him. Uh, he loses, but already you saw how he used the primaries as a Republican to do this. And in 1980, the primaries are important, defeating the establishment choice, who's President George, uh, uh, then George H.W. Bush, will yeah. be the vice president. Uh, and this is how he does it. I mean, this is how he shows Bush is vulnerable and he emerges as the star of the show. Yeah, yeah. And, and poor old George Bush in 1980 kind of looked hapless in the face of this Reagan insurgency, didn't he? Even, you know, calling, calling Reaganomics voodoo economics or, or whatever. And, and yet, it, it, yet it had no impact in the end. But that then raises another question I wanted to ask you, Julian, which is in both of those cases we've just talked about, 1976 and 1980, the uh, incumbent president faced a major challenge from within their own party. So we've just been talking about Ronald Reagan running against uh, Gerald Ford in 1976. And in 1980, uh, Jimmy Carter, having brilliantly used the primary uh, system, as we've discussed, to win the nomination in 1976. In 1980, he faces a major challenge himself from Senator Kennedy, Ted Kennedy uh, of Massachusetts. In both of those cases, did that challenge to the incumbent president in the primary system, which was possible because of the primary system in a way that would have been much, much more difficult before 1968, how important was that in explaining the loss of both of those presidents? It was important. I mean, I think in 76, it's a little different. Ford is the most one of the most unusual situations we've had in that uh, he becomes vice president under Nixon when Nixon's original vice president, Spiro Agnew, resigns in a scandal. And so then he's nominated, confirmed by the Senate, and, he's and then he becomes president when Nixon resigns. So he's never been elected to office. So I think there was a fragility and vulnerability about him from the start, in addition to Watergate hanging over him uh, throughout. 
Carter in 1980 faces a very serious challenge from Ted Kennedy, who represents kind of the liberal tradition of the party. And, you know, Kennedy does a lot of damage. I think he really uh, unpacks for voters why Carter is too much of a centrist, why he doesn't actually reflect what Democrats are about. And, you know, by the time the Democrats have their convention, the delegates are much more excited about Ted Kennedy's speech than they are about Carter. And someday, long after this convention, long after the signs come down and the crowd stop cheering and the band stop playing, may it be said of our campaign that we kept the faith. May it be said of our party in 1980 that we found our faith again. And may it be said of us both in dark passages and in bright days, in the words of Tennyson that my brothers quoted and loved. I am a part of all that I have met. Too much is taken, much abides. That which we are, we are. One equal temper of heroic hearts, strong in will to strive, to seek, to find, and not to yield. For me, a few hours ago, this campaign came to an end. For all those whose cares have been our concern, the work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. So we've described circumstances in which the introduction of primaries perhaps benefited the party in a general election by putting in place an exciting new candidate, Reagan or Carter, who perhaps wouldn't have come through under the old system. On the other hand, we're also describing a system which, by destabilising the establishment, created a kind of divisive conflict, which portrayed to the electorate, certainly as you're saying this was true in 1980 with Carter, the idea of a divided party uh, and weakened the candidate in the general election. So... Already, as it were, eight years after the introduction of these reforms, I guess the assessment would be then that the primary system was a double-edged sword for parties if their primary desire was to win in a general election as opposed to simply making their nomination process more responsive to their electorate. Yeah, I mean, I think pretty early on you see the flaws of the system. Uh, One flaw is that it actually encouraged candidates to run to the extreme uh, because the people who tended to vote in these primaries and caucuses were people most invested in politics and they tended not to be in the middle. And so candidates would say things and do things that didn't necessarily benefit them in in the general election. Uh, We also saw there was an element of spectacle um, since these where uh, competitions where the media played a big role, candidates often were engaging in a kind of politics that some political observers thought was not high politics. It was not deliberative. It was more, you know, who has the best 30-second soundbite? Who can do the best photo op? And that all of a sudden started to determine uh, who won or lost. And finally, and this did fit the intentions, the unpredictability of this, And the fact it did allow either challengers to incumbents or open 
uh, competitions where the pe- person who won was not necessarily going to be the one who was the best bet for the general election, but voters wanted them. All of this becomes clear pretty clearly. Um, and, and it's a balance, you know, I think we often talk now about the flaws. On the other hand, uh, the change was put in for a reason. And, and there were a lot of problems with that older system as well. You mentioned uh, Obama's run in 2008, where against early predictions, he beat the establishment favorite, uh, Hillary Clinton. And I think that came up because we were you were drawing the comparison with Jimmy Carter in, in 1976. Um, another example uh, that in a way we're still living with of an insurgent candidate beating establishment candidates and taking over the party unexpectedly was, of course, Donald Trump in 2016. Um, how would you situate that Donald Trump story? I mean, aside from any comments you, you, know, you might or might not want to make about his character or what he represents in the history of America, just within the context of this discussion we're having about the operation that he mounted in 2016 and how he was able to take over the Republican Party, was that something outside of the bounds of what we had seen before in either party? Or was it really just analogous to, on the Republican side, the success of Clinton in 92 or Carter in 76 or, or Obama in 2008? Was it fundamentally similar to that or was it something different? The answer with Trump always is a little of both. And so I do think it's important to remember that longer context where we had seen since 1976 how the new system could produce voices that the party did not think were the logical voices, um, meaning older party members, if we're talking about the party. Um, that they couldn't win. And so Carter, Reagan, uh, Obama, and there's a trajectory, Clinton. I mean, there is a long trajectory. And some ways Trump fit into that. A second part is that TV media element uh, that Carter back in 76 saw that's going to be key. That's what Trump did. The media had changed a lot in the intervening years. So he was playing to a very different kind of media and a conservative media, uh, but it was the same kind of perception about how you do this. And, you know, the differences are he totally abandoned the decorum of of politics. I mean, and he didn't care about that. Uh, And so that is different than these other people we've talked about, Obama and Clinton and Carter and Reagan. Uh, They still had tradition in their mind. They still respected certain norms. And that's where I think Trump was very different. He just said, that's not what I'm going to do. And he figured out that uh, his party was okay with that. It's always really hard in analyzing Trump. And you've written a a lot about this and edited a book on the Trump presidency, perhaps as you'll have to call it the first Trump presidency. But it's, it's always tricky, isn't it? Somehow kind of taking out of the equation his personality and his lack of decorum, as you put it, and and working out whether or not, if you can somehow manage to put that aside, we're looking at something within the bounds of normal within Republican Party politics. You know, what was it that Trump was representing that was fundamentally different to what other people in the Republican Party might have offered, aside from his very different personal style? But I I wonder really ask you about 
the the evolution of political parties over the last uh, 40 or 50 years and the role that the primary process has played in that. So in in each of these cases we've been talking about where uh, an insurgent candidate uh, either was successful in winning the nomination, like Carter um, or, or Clinton, or was nearly so, like Kennedy in 1980, there's been a sense, I think, or would you agree with this, in which they represent not only a kind of fresh face or a kind of more articulate or a different way, different political style from the alternative, but also that they represented some measurable, distinctive change of direction for the political party. And, I mean, Clinton, for example, in 1992, famously a new Democrat wanting to take the Democratic Party in a different direction to kind of reimagine liberalism in the context of a kind of changing economy, a tech economy, and so on, for example. Um, do, do you think that the the primary system has made it harder for party elites to hold the course has it made it have has it in effect has it in other words made political parties less stable has it made them more prone to ideological policy lurches than would otherwise have been the case yeah and and i i don't think that's totally different than what the reformers imagine you have very strong parties in the united states party identifications incredibly strong parties really on Capitol Hill, have immense power. You see that in votes and decisions all the de- all the time. But I think it's a different kind of party than we used to have. They are, in some ways, more fluid. They're more open to ideological shifts. And they do have space through the primary system for, as you're saying, uh, people pushing uh, where politics should be in a different direction. I mean, those people don't do it on their own. I think they often just are in tune with where more voters in the party are, and they are the first to say it and run on that, whereas older uh, kind of candidates are often scared or nervous about that change. Um, but it has had that effect. And I do think ideolo- it, it has kind of favored ideological politics because primaries and caucuses are, again, about turning out people who love politics and are following politics and they're watching their favorite news show uh, so how do you do that? You don't give kind of toned down, watered down arguments. You give them red meat. Um, and that's more ideological. And I think so we have a different kind of party than we used to, not weaker uh, and not as controlled for sure. Um, but that doesn't make it any less relevant. Yeah. So give me your read on the state of the two American political parties Right now, Julian, I mean, it is sometimes said uh, by Republicans, quite often said by Republicans, that they are now the party of the American working class. Uh, They uh, argue and there is evidence from election results and opinion polls to back this up, that to some degree, the composition of the Republican Party looks different now than it did 20 years ago and certainly 40 or 50 years ago that it is uh, poorer, um, more rural, less suburban, uh, less white collar. And consequently, the policy positions of the party, you would therefore would expect, you would expect to change to reflect that. And to some degree, perhaps the policy positions, insofar as you can discern them, of the Republican Party in the Trump era have changed to reflect that, most particularly in tonally and in terms of foreign policy and isolationism and America first and so on. 
But in other respects, the Republican Party is still saying the same things and voting in the same way that it did 20 or 30 years ago on welfare entitlements, on deficits, on, you know, those kinds of redistributive uh, policies. So how do you explain that paradox, if it is a paradox? And, you know, how do you read the the, the changing uh, character of the parties right at this point in February 2024? I mean, look, this has been a paradox that Reagan dealt with, too. Right? When Reagan was uh, president and running in 80 and 84, he tried to appeal to white working class voters and used cultural and social arguments to do so and argued deregulation in the end is better for everyone. And, and he had that. I mean, there, that was part. Nixon did it, too. I mean, the shift of working class ethnic uh, uh, white voters from the Democrats to Republicans has been going on for a long time. I think it's become a little more rural focused now uh, than it was back in the 80s. It was about voters in urban areas like cities like Chicago uh, turning them on issues of race. And then Reagan balanced that with supply side economics and appeal to business and and policies that often favored the opposite uh, of that coalition. I think it might be, and we'll have to see, that under Trump, the, the kind of working class part of this is, is becoming stronger in the party. It's becoming a bigger part of it. Uh, and, and some of that has reflected shifts in policy. Uh, certainly on trade uh, and, and international uh, economic relations, Trump has broken with some of the orthodoxies of, of the Republican Party. So I do think it's still a continuum and, and there might be more emphasis now on that one, one part of it. Um, and that's how I see it. I also think another part of the Republican Party that's quite important is kind of how extreme they've become. Uh, and the Democrats, it's not the story of the Democrats. The Democrats are still very much where they've been. They still abide by a lot of kind of traditional processes and norms. But what we've seen with the GOP under Trump, we've seen it on Capitol Hill from the Tea Party through today and, and even before that with Newt Gingrich, is a, a party where uh, there are no guardrails in pursuit of partisan power. Uh, where there are no norms that have to be followed, where anything goes, really anything goes. And I think that's what Trump understood about his party, that that was okay. Um, and and so I think that's another important part, which is about character. But that character of the party has immense effects on the way policymaking doesn't happen or happens and how governance has problems and how the democracy itself now is kind of perpetually struggling to prove uh, that it's stable and that it's going to work. Republicans might respond to what you've just said by saying, no, wait a minute, actually, the Democratic Party has certainly become very extreme. Uh, look at trans issues, look at the language of equity. They've abandoned the principle of equality of opportunity in favor of the you know, the woke agenda in heavy inverted commas of diversity, equity and inclusion. Uh, do you give them any credit for truth in that? Is there any sense in which on those issues about race, essentially cultural issues, issues that sort of came out of seminar rooms in universities to the college-educated middle classes, urban middle classes who form the kind of articulate core of the Democratic Party. I mean, that, as you know, is a, is, a, is a critique of the state of the 
current Democratic Party by many people um, on the left. Um, Rue Tierra, I think I've got his present, <laughs> said his name right. Rue Tierra, for example, who wrote the book 20 years ago, a say now called The Coming Democratic Majority, predicated on the idea that democracy, uh, that uh, uh, um, demography was destiny, uh, who now says the reason why the Democratic Party aren't the dominant party that he thinks they should be, given the changing composition of the American electorate, is because they've kind of veered off into these kind of woke obsessions and are no longer articulating the sort of common sense, patriotic values of the ordinary um, American middle and working class as the Democratic Party has traditionally done. How would you react There's to that? two different parts to this. Uh, one is, isn't it the same? And I don't think it's the equivalent story we're talking about. Yes, the Democrats have more of a progressive wing. These kinds of divisions always happen. You have that, but where we started this conversation in the 60s, that was kind of the problem the Democrats faced, an anti-war youth vote on uh, much more left on race and, and many issues. And party had to balance this. And, and that's part of what's going on today. It's kind of a tradition for Democrats. But what's notable, the leaders of the party are not actually from that wing. Joe Biden, who's president of the United States, is not part of the squad, as they are called. Uh, Chuck Schumer is the head of the Democratic Party. He couldn't be more extremes, whereas the Republicans are and they have been. It is. Uh, and it is. And again, it's I always hear these kind of issues and think, well, we have to like look overall. Uh, the Democrats still do much better with Latino voters, black voters, and these losses, which are serious and, and should be looked at, are still not the entire population drifting over. Uh, most do not, and most don't see the Republicans as a party that is sympathetic to them. Even class, I mean, Trump did not win most of the votes of many voters we would characterize as middle class and working class. He got pockets of them. And in rural areas, you see that very, very dramatically. But it is a concern. I'm not saying it's not. Um, I think sometimes the debate tends to be a little extreme uh, in these shifts. Uh, and Democrats, though, uh, even if they're not seen it that way, need to understand why is some of this change happening and does the Republican Party have the potential uh, to create the kind of coalition that they have been uh, unable to do, uh, which is broader, more diverse. But right now it's not that. It's still a party very much the GOP rooted in rural white America uh, with pickups in these other parts of the electorate. But that's not the heart of the party. And so if that's the case, I think really what Democrats need to worry about is turning out voters in a handful of swing states and making sure uh, not that they're turning voters who have left, but that they're exciting voters who are already on their side and have no intention of voting for the GOP. That's where I think Democrats can easily fall short. Yeah, it's it's so um, hard, this, isn't it? I mean, one of the interesting things for scholars of politics is in thinking about elections is understanding that element of contingency you know in every in pretty much every election important election in american history or in british history or in any other democratic country's history for that matter you can make the case well you know if two thousand voters in a certain place had voted the other way the whole outcome would have been different and look at how the the the, the we would be, we would read things very differently now we may well be in one of those moments now where in the future people come back and look at 2024 
and assuming it's a relatively close election, everything we've been talking about will look very different depending on the outcome, right? I mean, if if Joe Biden uh, remains the Democratic candidate and if he loses to, to Donald Trump in November, the narrative, it seems to me, may very well be what extraordinary hubris on the part of the Democratic Party to nominate an 81-year-old in whom the polls clearly showed the public no longer had confidence, whatever warm feelings they may have had about him in the past, however uh, much they may have recognized his accomplishments of president, that the electorate was clearly telling the Democratic Party, do not give us this candidate in 2024, and yet the party is doing so. If he wins, no one will remember it. If he loses, that will look like a historic error. Equally, you can make exactly the same argument, of course, on the Republican side. Donald Trump is clearly a candidate who has an extraordinary, almost cult-like fan base among a significant minority of the American population, but he's clearly also loathed. His capacity to mobilize negatively is immense. Um, he is a very bold candidate, to, to put it mildly, for the Republican Party to, to choose as well. Um, is part of the kind of anxiety, or the, 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 the sense of anxiety that I, I sense uh, um, my, among my American friends and colleagues and everybody around the world who follows American politics and cares about America, is it partly due to that sense in which there's a kind of recklessness going on here, that, that we're, we're in the hands of... 10,000 voters here and there in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania and the parties themselves uh, are kind of have, have lost control by putting in weak candidates when they could have put in much stronger ones. Part of it is actually the parties are so strong right now. So what's happened is we no longer have huge swings in the electorate. And so 1984 when Ronald Reagan defeats Walter Mondale, that's the last landslide we had. We used to have 1936, 1972, 1984. These elections where one candidate would just win tons of states, like most of the map would go to them. And it, and it was easy to see that. And then you, you saw a mandate um, going one way or another. Now what we have are uh, elections where much of the map is not going to change. And that's true in 2024. Republicans are going to vote Republican in most of the states where they have done that, similarly with the Democrats. And so that leaves us with three or four swing states. And within those states, it's not as if the whole state is swinging back and forth. You're talking about slivers of the electorate where the parties have picked up uh, some kind of uncertainty. And so... Uh, that, A, explains the danger of reading too much. You're actually just reading who has a better turnout operation in these states. Hillary Clinton, many think, lost in 2016 because she didn't take Michigan and Wisconsin seriously. And in some ways, it's easier to understand in 1984 uh, when Reagan and his ideas just were dominant as opposed to 2016, 20, and 24, where these handful of states are going to make the difference last question julian how do you break out of this kind of trench warfare this kind of deadlock i mean one day things will change you know the the, the frozen war on the on the western front didn't last forever uh, highly um polarized close elections uh in the late 19th century didn't last forever Sometimes political scientists talk about the United States as currently being in a cold civil war. Um, civil wars generally end by one side defeating the other conclusively. 
Although I guess they can also end by the issues that created the war disappearing and a whole new set of issue agendas arising, which is possibly what happened in the Great Depression era. Yep. What's your prediction as a historian? Yeah, I'm less optimistic, uh, or at least optimistic is normative, but I, I'm not as sure a big issue will do it. I mean, we just lived through COVID and a global pandemic. It didn't, didn't change the politics. It's kind of remarkable how much is exactly where it was before that started. I do think the implosion of a party's political power, that's how this will happen. One of the parties um, will not we'll start to lose those votes and enough of this, more states will become swing states because of their inability to appeal to a traditional part of the party. That's what's going to happen. I mean, if the Republicans don't do well, if they actually continue on the trajectory we've seen since 2018 and their numbers start to shrink, more people in the party are going to say, this is no longer the way we're going to do business. Uh, it's crass, it's hard, but that's how parties think. And so I think that's really the only possibility of change that I can foresee. The other option, and it's harder, is reform. So real institutional reforms of primary systems, where we started this, and of gerrymandering, and of the rules of Congress, all of this, um, which is very rare in the U.S. history, and in the progressive era and in the 70s, but it's very hard. And especially rare, surely, when you're in this situation of polarization. Who wants to give up the source of their power? No one. But it has to be taken away as a result of scandal or crisis. But I think one of those two, realistically, is the way we eventually move into a different kind of era. What that era is, I have no idea. might be worse for many people than this one is. Uh, so we shouldn't expect change to always be in a progressive direction. Well, on that note, which is not an especially optimistic one, <laughs> Julian Zelitzer, thank you very much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I was talking to Julian Zelitzer, prize-winning author, whose most recent book, edited with his Princeton colleague and former contributor to this podcast, Kevin Cruz, is called Myth America. Historians take on the biggest legends and lies about our past. And this has been The Last Best Hope from Oxford's Rothermere American Institute. This is the podcast that examines how history has shaped the United States and what it stands for. If you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and tell people about us. And if you'd like to make a donation, however big or small, to enable us to keep making this podcast, please go to our website at rai.ox.ac.uk and follow the links. Or send me an email and we would be very grateful to receive any support you might be able to give. Our producer is Emily Williams and my name's Adam Smith. Goodbye. Goodbye.